Hi everyone, welcome to Compass Point, the official podcast of the Windrose Project. I'm your host today, Spencer Amaral. With me is a very special guest, a teammate on the Windrose team, um, our philosopher extraordinaire, Jared Eckert. Welcome to the show, Jared. Thank you. Great to be with you today. So Jared, you describe yourself as a <laughs> reformaholic, an Aristotelian, and a, a, a devotee of natural law, yes. all things that I love. And so I'm very glad to have you here. We're going to talk through uh, basically natural law in the context of our ever more so nihilist and relativistic uh, cultural worldview. And so, Jared, to set up this conversation, let's define relativism and nihilism and their relationship to one another. You want to take a stab yeah. at that? Yeah, that's a great starting point. Um, so I think uh, it's safe to say that nihilism uh, is the belief that all values are baseless and that nothing can be known or really communicated. Um, it's often associated with uh, extreme pessimism or uh, radical skepticism, and especially towards existence and morality. Um, relativism is uh, similar but slightly different. It's just the idea that uh, there is no ultimate truth or ultimate moral value, but that all of it is uh, relative, that there's no standard. It's, it's uh, left up to each individual to decide. And as far as the relationship, I think it's safe to say that they're almost like two sides of the same coin. Um, relativism really has this approach to the world that um, it's maybe more, um, you could say, functional. Uh, it helps people actually live life because people want, uh, seem to want meaning. Um, but nihilism seems to suggest that there is no meaning and it accepts that and lives life from that point. Relativism uh, seems to maybe hold back from from that in certain ways, uh, but that's how mm. I would that's how I would understand their relationship, at least just as a starting point. Right, I, I agree. I think they're very connected. Now, it's fascinating to me that in our time, relativism is the norm, not because it's a tenable philosophy, but rather i think just practically speaking because nobody can agree on right. anything and so we kind of choose to just step away and say you know what you can have your perspective and i'll even you know condescend to tell you sure that can be right. your truth but i have a totally different perspective but this is my right. truth um let me just ask you real quick is that sustainable mm. is it sustainable for us to try to build a society where we all genuinely think we have our own version mm. of whatever truth is out there? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think, I think it's maybe more practical or, or, um, it, in the sense that it helps us to, right, get along with one another. Um, but there's a sense in which, uh, there is no neutrality, uh, with respect to, uh, the good life or to what is, um, you know, the right kind of, the just regime, you could say. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's important for us to recognize that even where and when people say that uh, there is no uh, ultimate truth or value, that they're still operating under some conception, some positive conception of what they believe to be the life worth uh, living and the society worth living in. So uh, to put it mm. another way, 
right? And this is brought up frequently, but uh, there's an element of, you know, and I'm not saying whether this is right or wrong right now, but, um, you know, there's this element of it's a it, tolerance is desired and and ought to be promoted. And where people are no longer tolerant, then we don't, you know, the relativist won't uh, tolerate intolerance. And that's not a contradiction. Mm. That's just showing that they have a, a positive conception of what they believe to be good and and bad. It's some sort of standard that is acceptable. And if you if you transgress that standard, then you violate the rules of what they believe to be the good life, you know, or the right, the just society. Right. Yeah, we don't even talk using those terms yeah. anymore. But you're right. It, it always comes back to the vision that we have as individuals for the the end goal yeah. of all this. Where what are we kind of what kind of a world are we actually right. trying to build? What are we pursuing? Right. And if we have different visions and different end goals that we're pursuing, you can't all just run parallel to each other because you're actually working in different directions. Yeah, and you're right. And that's inescapable. Yeah, and you're right to bring up they wouldn't use that language of of good or bad. Uh because they don't want to go that far, at least so they would say. Um, they just, they do have, I think the the point is that there's, the point to, to be made is that there's no neutrality, um, that people do have a right. positive concept of what they think is, you know, the life worth living, whether that you want to call that morally mm-hmm. or objectively good is a, is a different thing. But we're all moving, like you said, towards a certain conceived end of the good life. Or... Yeah, which is actually a good thing. I would rather people have a vision for the you know w- what is worth pursuing and fighting for, rather than falling into a nihilism that says there is nothing worth pursuing. Right. You know, there is no good, there is no evil. The crazy thing is, now we were talking about this a little earlier, Jared. Mm-hmm. I don't think anybody in America. Well, I think most people in America will agree that. Well, the thing we talk about the most, life has value. We live our lives as though Mm -hmm. that's true. We get out of bed with a sense of purpose and we go through our day pursuing some good in everything that we're doing, right? Everything we do, we do for some reason. And so we live with a sense of purpose. But then when we step back and we look at the world, a lot of people tend to think, and I, I think it's just because this is the norm or it's, you know, it's the, it's easy to fall back on this cultural mindset. This is, you know what, there is no real truth out there. I don't know if there is. We'll never right. know if there is. It's all random. Everything in this world is random, and thus it's meaningless. But that totally goes against the whole idea that we do everything right. with purpose, right. right? And so, whereas people practically fall back into relativism, I don't think anybody, you know, for most people, I don't think most people are actually in their heart nihilists who think everything is utterly meaningless yeah. and random. And yet we're building this cultural mindset based on yeah. that point. And that is deeply troubling to me. So Jared, I want to know, how did we get to this point where we're living in this cognitive dissonance where we live our lives as though there's a mm-hmm. sense of purpose? We look at people and we want to affirm the value and specialness of the people around us. And yet Technically, when you ask people to to explain, like, mm. why is this true or is this true at all, people will actually, at that point, kind of just give up and throw their hands yeah. up. And I think that that's the most important question of all. So how did we get to yeah, this that's point? A, yeah, another great question. I think I'm going to preface all of my responses probably with that. That's a great question. Um, yeah, I so I think it's important for us to recognize that nihilism and relativism um, 
are both a response, they, they come at the end of certain developments in the history of ethics. Um, and it really all begins, you could, you know, loosely pin it to the beginning of, of modernity, which is typically recognized around the time of, you know, you could go as early as the Renaissance, you could see another starting point in the Enlightenment. But basically, um, what what begins to happen is, um, you know, sci- there are a bunch of advances made in science, uh, in the hard sciences, as, as we tend to think of them today. And I think a lot of people during that time were unsure of how to approach the world as a result of those discoveries and those advancements. Um, and so for many, there was, maybe you could say, an existential crisis for uh, the West uh, during those times. And and there were a lot of good things or a lot of bad things. It's, it's a mixed bag, and I'm, I'm not trying to paint it in, in right. one, uh, you know, one light or the other. Um, but I, I do think it's important for us to recognize that um, as a result of those things, both, both uh, uh, ethics and uh, academic uh, research generally uh, were responding to those advancements. So uh, specifically within mm. the history of ethics, I think uh, utilitarianism and uh, deontology are two, two ethical theories that are worth addressing today as, 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 the, mm. um, as maybe the starting point of, of responses and nihilisms, uh, nihilism as a reaction to those. So long story short, we got here because there was this thing called the modern era, yeah. which had some beginning historians debate about mm-hmm. when that was. Regardless, it happened, and it is since uh, utterly tumbled down and collapsed. Yeah. And we're living in the, the wake right, of that. Exactly. And so... And you and so uh, if you if you're saying that relativism and nihilism today are the direct aftermath of deontology and utilitarianism, actually, I want to start with utilitarianism, if you'll allow me. Certainly, of um, course. Let's I think, go there. I think that will help us. That will help, that will help frame the history better. Um, so, uh, utilitarianism, in a sentence, is the ethical view that. Uh, we ought to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. Um, and there is, you know, it, it really blossoms in the thought of uh, men like Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill, but it begins with Hume, who is an 18th century philosopher. And what what's important to recognize here is that um, for the utilitarian or the proto-utilitarian approach uh, of someone like Hume, uh, passion is the basis of morality. And so what is the guiding principle and the guiding norm uh, is really this the sense of what Hume will call sympathy um, uh, that enables us to uh, pursue not only our own pleasure, but actually the pleasure of others, the, uh, the, uh, the kind of best situation uh, for everyone around us is, is really driven by sympathy. Because we want to be happy... We want as many people around us right. to be happy exactly. as possible. Exactly. And that becomes the guiding uh, beacon for yeah. society. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, like I s- That sounds wonderful, Jerry. <laughs> yeah. So, like I said, it, it develops and blossoms into something that uh, John Stuart Mill really develops. And that's where you get this idea of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain. Um, and not just for the individual, but for the collective. Um, in terms of strengths, you know, I think... 
sympathy is a strong emotional uh, reality um, that a lot of people experience. I do think there's a place for that in our discussion of, of ethics. Um, I do think the passions are not insignificant. Um, and additionally, that it's uh, the great thing about utilitarianism is that it's not just about immediate gratification. There, there are uh, there's a lot that can be said about you know, thinking about long-term happiness uh, versus kind of immediate or, or short-term gratification. Um, and additionally, it's not just individual, uh, you know, oriented. It's it's collective. There, it it expands um, in it, the history of its development into the greatest pleasure for the greatest number. So these are all clear strengths of a position like this. And I don't want to uh, not acknowledge them. Right. I would also say that this is probably still very um, prevalent in our time because it's just, it seems so obvious. Like, how, why would we make this bill or why would we pass um, you know, this law or elect this politician? Well, we're just trying to make as many people happy right. as possible, right? And so this seems like the the obvious no-brainer approach to the world. But where does this leave us um, short, yeah. Jared? What's What were the weaknesses of utilitarianism? Yeah, so it is important to recognize, like you asked, that there are, there are certainly weaknesses. Um, let's, I'll take it, uh, kind of a work backward, you know, yeah, a work backwards. Um, the greatest pleasure for the greatest number, right, is kind of maybe the, the ultimate kind of final articulation of utilitarianism um, by someone like John Stuart Mill, kind of in its mature development as a, as a uh, tradition of thought. And um, while this sounds great, uh, I think a lot of people recognize that uh, this kind of thinking in this kind of thinking, the, the ends tend to justify the means. The, the outcomes, the results are what are emphasized versus uh, maybe the intrinsic, you know, what's, what's relative to the action or to the, no kidding. To the yeah. decisions themselves. So this is where a lot of people will critique uh, utilitarians for, you know, if, if you have 500 people being held hostage and uh, the bad guys say, we'll let, you know, 499 people go, uh, but one person has to die. Um, you know, and and there's there's this question of well, actually, and you have to right. kill them, right? You have to choose them, and yeah. You have to so kill them. Yeah. there's this element in which we recognize, okay, there's something wrong, there's something off about that kind of calculus. Um, how can I choose one life deliberately, uh, you know, versus another life? And so it starts playing into a bunch of other kinds of calculations that you're going to decide. Okay, well, mm -hmm. how would I make that decision? Rather than beginning from this place that says, well, actually all life has value and it should be inviolable to murder another person um, kind of out of, you know, for no reason, if that makes sense. That's a great point. Inevitably, there will be a tension between um, arguing for the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, which places, you know, the ethical good in quantity right. like that versus a quality right. kind of argument and saying, well, every individual life right. counts and every individual life matters. And and therefore you can't pit or you can't throw the individual under right. the bus in order to save, you know, right. many, many people. Yeah. It's, it's, it runs against what we tend to think of uh, when we think of traditional morality, right? That there are certain things that ought not be done, that the right thing is always the right thing to do. Uh, no matter what, regardless of mm. the circumstances. Killing is always wrong. 
you know, uh, killing an innocent person is always wrong, no matter the circumstance. Um, but I, I do want to point out that even, you know, so let's say utilitarians uh, were able to work around this problem and they were able to, to you know, come out unscathed and we're still able to say, you know, we can, we can require the greatest happiness for the greatest number. Um, I think another thing that's worth pointing out is that um, even aside from, from that previous counter-argument that we just discussed, um, what utilitarians uh, often overlook uh, is that pleasure is by nature a very subjective experience. Uh, and by this, I simply mean that um, what makes pleasure worth pursuing for me as an individual is that it's my pleasure. That um, there's something about experiencing pleasure directly um, that is more valuable to people than experiencing pleasure secondhand. So even though I might get pleasure mm-hmm. from another person's pleasure, um, it's not my pleasure. And there's this really great example uh, of like uh, if you know uh, if you were asked to be hooked up to an experience a uh, pleasure machine, I think is is the name of the example, um, and you could have all the pleasure you want. Uh, through simulated experiences, but you wouldn't have the real experiences would you choose to plug in. Um, And a lot of people say no to that for the simple reason that actually what's valuable to us is having the experience ourselves. right? It's not just simply the quantity of pleasure derived from simulation or stimulation, but actually Mm. we want to have that experience ourselves. So what that means is that ultimately... uh, Pleasure and the reason why we pursue what we pursue is because we are pursuing it. So what that means then is mm-hmm. that actually this, this uh, requirement, this moral rule to pursue the greatest pleasure for the greatest number actually breaks down because, uh, because what makes pleasure worth pursuing is, is that it's my pleasure. And so at most, all that can be really required is that individuals pursue their own pleasure. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Jared, do you uh, you mind if I play some devil's yeah, advocate? Sure. Okay, so let's go back to that illustration. You got 500 people. The terrorists come along and say, you need to pick one and uh, you need to kill them and then we'll let the rest of you go. How would you respond to that? What um, Obviously, we can see how utilitarianism might... Um, utilitarian... Think, thinking misses something if, if you know it leads us to say, oh, well, there's nothing wrong with picking one person because sacrificing one so the 499 can go free, that's a good thing. So we can, you know, do that. We pick the little girl in the corner or we pick, you know, an old person who has cancer right. and they didn't have long to live anyway. And so, and then we could walk away and our conscience is clear. Problem number one, I think we might run to is like, no, your conscience won't right. be clear when you walk away from that. You'll know that there was something really uh, wrong that happened there. And what was it? The fact that you violated the sanctity of the individual right. human right. life there. But so how do you respond to that kind of a, a predicament? Yeah. Um, if that were to happen to you, what would you do, yeah, Jared? That's a, that's a really tricky question. Um, not a great question, a tricky question. <laughs> how would you begin to yeah. think through it? You're sitting there, you're trapped on the boat or whatever right. it is. The gun is in your face. Yeah. What What are you thinking? Yeah, so I do think uh, that I, I don't want to suggest that there aren't that that every moral situation is a walk in the park. There are situations in which we have to weigh uh, outcomes. Yeah, they rarely are. Uh, yeah. We have to weigh outcomes uh, 
against you know um, the the nature of an act itself. And um, so I think that there, uh, in a traditional Christian way of thinking about it, there is uh, what's called the principle of double effect. And so what it talks about is that uh, in a situation, right, of say like self-defense, the the good that's being pursued has to be greater than the bad that would be committed by the act itself. So if I am if I am holding a gun and someone's robbing me, right, and I'm trying to act in self-defense, uh, the question is, you know, what am I justified in doing morally to that person in the name of self-defense? Um, you know, uh, do I should I shoot them uh, to kill them? Should I shoot them in the leg? You know, all these things are are ways that we can make that. You know that that's coming into the calculus now. Obviously, if someone is trying to uh, actually take my life, and they're not just trying to take, you know, I don't know, say nice things in my house that I have, then you know, I think there's there is some degree of uh, equal, you know, an equal action requires or uh, justifies an equal opposite reaction, you know, by someone. So if someone's trying to take my life, and in the right. event of me self defending, they end up getting killed, then. I think it's not, we're not, what we're not saying is it's still, a, we're not saying that it's not tragic that that person dies, uh, but we're saying that that kind of uh, action in that kind of situation is um, legitimate and justified because of what was happening to you. Right. This is a good thing to talk about because a lot of times people, um, you know, when I'm talking with students about the idea of intrinsic value in every single human life. Um, I think a lot of people will hear that and think, oh, well, then you don't believe in defending mm-hmm. yourself. Or, you know, if someone broke into your home with right. a gun, uh, what, what would you think? Oh, well, I can't shoot back because their life has intrinsic value. And I think that that's a, <laughs> it's an oversimplified uh, way of thinking yeah. about it because it totally ignores the, the value of the lives of the right. victims that stand to be lost if you don't resist evil and if you don't right. stand up to the person who's willing to enter a home and commit right. a crime or murder, right. right? So it's not like only the the criminal in the situation has right. value. The criminal's life does have value, right. absolutely. But so do the people who live right. in the home and the children who stand right. to be harmed and you know the man who might get right. killed for trying to protect and, his family. Their lives right. have value and too. And notice that in my explanation of my response, I, I didn't resort to, you know, a sort of net pleasure or a net, uh, you know, pain. I'm glad um, you didn't. I'm talking about... Because I would have <laughs> nailed you for that. I'm talking about genuine, you know, <laughs> life as a genuine good, right? And and when it comes under threat in any situation, yeah. deserves to be uh, pursued and protected wherever possible. Um, and people who choose to violate that good are held, you know, are held to account. Um and that's and that's the decision making. But I still didn't hear an answer, Jared. <laughs> like in terms of what I would do, I didn't hear an answer. What do you do? You're on the boat. I, you know, it's funny. I have the picture from uh, Batman. Uh, what the Dark oh, Knight? Yeah, it's in the Dark Knight when the Joker has like the two ships. Yes. You know, and each ship has a bunch of people on it. He's like, you gotta, you gotta blow up the other boat, and then you can all go free, right? right? And that's not even like sacrificing one. Right. That's that's killing a whole bunch of people to save right. yourself. But in this situation, you're on a boat like that, and the pirates got a gun to your face, and they want you to pick someone mm-hmm. to kill. What do you do? So yeah. let me tell you how yeah. what my mind goes to here. 
Well, we're dealing with the the intrinsic value of the individual, right? Every life yeah. is value. So that's why we would not be able to just randomly right. pick someone out of the right. crowd and walk away with a clean conscience, yeah. right? Um, because we would be committing a grave right. moral wrong exactly. there by being complicit with this right. evil that violates the dignity of right. human life. Um, at the same time, you know, if you don't do anything and then all 500 people die, I'm sure, you know, there are other people who'd be very right. mad at you. Well, so <laughs> you'd be dead. So you wouldn't, right. you know, have nightmares about it. But don't don't you want to try to save right. the 500? So I think the best example we have, uh, you know, and this comes along the lines of vicarious suffering, yeah. I suppose. But it's the person of Christ who voluntarily right. sacrificed himself exactly. for the sake of right. others, right? And so I would think that in that situation, were it possible, were, were it granted to me by the pirates or whoever in the situation, like the only proper response is to say, if one must be sacrificed right. for the many, it's wrong for me to choose right. someone else and sacrifice right. them and deny the value of their life. But I can voluntarily offer myself right. as a sacrifice out of the love um, that I have for the other right. people in the situation that I would like to be able to see right. set free. Yeah, I think I think right. What's what's important to notice and what you're getting at is what's not being asked in the question uh, is you know uh, as if the the thing that merits being done is killing these people or killing these people versus what you're saying having another option of laying down your own life or recognizing that you don't actually have to commit that grave evil. You can choose to resist. Um, and actually, right. regardless of the outcome of that, you, there's always a third made, way. You've made the right decision. So like, let's say, let's up the ante. Let's say you weren't permitted to uh, lay down your own life. Um, you know, are you justified in making the wrong kind of decision um, to, you know, are you justified in killing one person for 500 people uh, to be let go? I think you, you know, aside from the principle of, of double effect, I think you could also talk about, you know, someone who chooses to, to do the right thing, to not give in to that moral evil, um, even if those people uh, have to suffer. Um, and the truth is that we all suffer and that there's no prolonging life, you know, outside of our, con- outside of, um, or in our control. There's no, there's no prolonging my life. I can't play God in that way. And I think the problem with a lot right. of these moral dilemma situations is that, uh, you know, they're like the typical trolley cart dilemma. It's like, well, okay, it's very rare. Like <laughs> yeah. moral reasoning doesn't actually happen on that scale uh, most of the time. It's very rare. Um, and so what we need to right. realize is that actually the more helpful thing for us is of to course. realize that actually um, it's, it's never good to tell a lie. Or it's never good, you know, to uh, harm my neighbor or, you know. Or submit to Right, evil. exactly, to, to do an evil thing, um, regardless of the outcome, but simply because it's wrong. Um, and so I right. want to conclude this section on utilitarianism and we can move on to deontology. But, um, you know, ultimately, I think what we need to realize is because it's subjective, uh, that ultimately what this means is what one culture at a given time celebrates as that worth you know, that desire, the kind of pleasure worth pursuing. Um, it's only that way because it, of the culture, because of the social historical context. And so what this means is that, you know, should should uh, cultural mores change or should uh, a new generation uh, raise, you know, rise up that uh, 
doesn't want the same things that the previous generation or the previous setting, um, you know, what's going to determine what pleasures we give priority to and what pains uh, we want to avoid uh, kind of from a broader universal picture. Uh, it, ultimately, it's arbitrary. And there's no, there's no way to adjudicate between what we ought to pursue in terms of pleasure and what we ought to avoid in terms of pain. Um, that it's going to be very, uh, in a sense, the, the response of relativism to this uh, ethical theory makes sense because it's, it, it is arbitrary. How can you decide um, if it's purely subjective? Right. And something uh, implicit in what you're saying is that if I pursue my own subjective pleasure and you sub- uh, you pursue your own subjective pleasure and everyone is living this way, it, it is only a matter of right. time before our personal desires begin to conflict right. with one another. Yeah. Uh, because we live in a world with you know limited resources, limited space, right. limited material and limited right. time you know all these things are limited and so if we're pursuing everything we can get and as much as right. we want for the sake of our own pleasure we're inevitably going to be bumping right. heads and conflict will arise right. yeah and so that's another element right. whether individually so how can you know which desires yeah. are good and which are bad yeah. and i guess you could try to do the calculus game right like add up well they care very much about this whereas these guys right. care a little less about it and so let's give it to the people who care more right. but it's subjective. It's impossible to really quantify, you know, and it, it's not a reliable or sustainable ma- right. model. Exactly, and whether that's on the individual level or the collective level, and you know, um, just as a, I'll just pin a quick note to this. Uh, someone like Hayek has a really yeah. great point from an economic perspective. You know, how can you actually acquire the uh, information that we would that would be required to make that kind of calculus? Right. Um, whether you know, we can talk about that economically, but we could also talk about that morally, and it's impossible. Um, to to pretend like I know how much something means to another person is playing God and actually isn't possible to some degree, at least on that on that system. Um, but even in any other system, it seems absolutely problematic. So, anyways, I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. It is playing God, and I think Nietzsche sees that and calls exactly. it out. And he's like, look. You guys are, you know, emoting and making these moral claims. But in reality, we, we know that all that's going on here is you're making yeah. power plays. This is all about power. You are asserting your will right. over others. And that's right. all that it is. At or the if you're not, you know, doing power moves and power plays, then you definitely, uh, you definitely should be taking advantage of that because that's all there is, right? Because it is so subjective. <laughs> um, right. So. Now, of course, I don't agree right. with Nietzsche in that. But given... The, the the cultural game of his time, he called their bluff. Exactly. Called him out for what it was. And he just uh, exposed the, the philosophical deficiencies right, exactly. of their argument. Yep. Yep. So, okay. Good. You also brought up deontology. Yeah. You want to turn to that yeah, quickly? Yeah, we'll do that super okay. quick. So deontology uh, comes after utilitarianism and is a response to utilitarianism. And uh, rejecting utilitarianism and its uh, ethics based on passion. Um, Deontology says that uh, the good life is the one that is lived uh, doing duty for duty's sake. Um, It's not about the outcome. It's not about pleasure. It's not about pain. The right thing is always right, and we ought to do it. And um, just in terms of, you know, okay, so I said duty. What what is one's duty? How do you decide that? For the deontologist, um, 
which uh, deontology is really put forward by Immanuel Kant, um, again, who comes after uh, Hume um, and is a 18th century, uh, 19th century philosopher and kicks that off. Um, he says that duty is determined according to a simple test. And that test is, can I wish or will that it be followed, you know, this, this rule uh, be followed by everyone at all times and all places? Um, and basically, regardless of any circumstance, could I desire that this thing that I am doing uh, be practiced by every human being in the world? And if so, he says, then it's a reasonable and a right moral duty. Mm. It's kind of nice that he's trying to be objective right. about it. And it captures, right? it definitely <laughs> captures what we tend to think about morality, right? It, it, it captures perfectly what we, right. the, the very things we were uncomfortable about uh, utilitarianism. Um, you, what if everyone lived this yeah, way? Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, adequately capture, it adequately captures um, the intuition that some things are intrinsically good or bad um, and can't be mm. violated, even if for a desirable outcome. Um, again, what is right is right, and what is wrong is wrong. No if, ands, or buts. Um, but of course, mm. like with anything, there, there are weaknesses. Um, and uh, long story short, what we see is a similar kind of uh, arbitrariness in deontology um, that what's to stop me from willing uh, kind of even just slightly or partially uh, arbitrary duty. So uh, uh, Alistair McIntyre in his amazing book, um, uh, After Virtue, talks about, uh, you know, presumably we could, we could see ourselves saying, uh, not just keep all your promises throughout your life, period, but we would, I think a lot of us would be comfortable with saying, with um, kind of having as uh, a universalizable duty you know, the, the idea of keeping all your promises throughout your life except one. You know, that, like, most people wouldn't have a problem with that and having a get-out-of-jail-free get uh, get card um, would be nice, you know. Um, but there's also mm. nothing that really stops it from uh, being even more arbitrary and saying something like, you know, we should always, I think McIntyre uses the example of, we should always eat eat uh, shellfish on Mondays in March, you know, presumably, you know, if I really like that, I can see myself living in a world and wishing everyone else in the world doing it. I'll that. sign up so, for that. Yeah. Um, so what ends mm. up happening again is that uh, it's a similar, it's a similar sort of problem to the utilitarian, namely that um, how we determine which duties to follow is actually a lot more historically uh, and culturally situated and determined than we'd like to admit. Um, that actually, when Kant is putting forward, you know, the, the duties he thinks people ought to follow, um, he's doing it not because he has successfully uh, defended that those those duties are 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 alone universalizable and uh, applicable to all, um, and not contingent on any any circumstance, but that actually, uh, like Hume. Uh, very, very shaped. They were very shaped by um, his own historical and cultural context. And so, again, we come to the evaluation of nihilism and relativism, which, right, charges deontology with a similar kind of arbitrariness. Hmm. So, I I think listening to you describe that, 
uh, the arbitrary quality of deontology where we just pick these, um, these duties that seem to make sense to us and we universalize them. Um, I think that's exactly what we have today with political correctness. Politically correct culture is by definition, it's arbitrary because it's the will mm. of the people. And we imagine that our will is, you know, uh, permanent or something. But no, you, over time, culture changes, people's minds right. change, and we, we create new rules. And you realize how arbitrary the last right. rules were. And thus, by definition, the new ones are equally as arbitrary other than, well, right. we all just happen to agree on this. So there's and, that. Um, and if I can add, an, an unfortunate thing is that even sure. uh, within uh, Christian or conservative cultures, um, that the same thing ends up happening is uh, a defense is made in certain strains, not I'm not throwing them all out together, but in certain strains, you get the same sort of, we're just putting forward a, a duty, but we're not really giving the reason why. And so from an outside perspective, right, it's mm. like, well, why should I choose your set over my set uh, of duties? Right. Yeah. Good point. Okay. So Jared, is there a connection, you think, uh, in that both of these schools of thought that you've looked at, deontology and utilitarianism, do you think there's a connection that both of these lead to subjectivism? And if so, yeah, why? Uh, I think that is a very important point that we have to make uh, here is that uh, nihilism is, is, and relativism are the proper response to both of these uh, because they have fallen prey to subjectivism. Uh, but that subjectivism is baked in both mm. of them. What's interesting is actually uh, Kant, the father of deontology, is responding directly to Hume, who is, who is, in a way, the father of what ends up becoming utilitarianism. And behind both of these perspectives is uh, a belief that we can't access reality. And, and what I mean by that is, is we can't, by our reason, access um, things in themselves. The order, you know, if there is an order in the world, we, we can't know it. Um, and so uh, there are different emphases for Hume uh, he he ends up moving into skepticism entirely, saying that the reason uh, why we see something happen, uh, you know, he uses the example of a, of a billiard ball. Every time, you know, the black one uh, hits another one and uh, the white ball moves, um, you know, or whatever colors it might be, anytime one ball hits the other and it causes the other one to propel forward, he says that that's just, uh, that we think it's causal is actually a result of convention, not because it's actually there in the world. Um, so even things like that, he's skeptical about. Um, and Kant tries to repair this, but he bases it on the same view of reality, that we can't know anything. And so Kant tries to solve this by um, kind of putting categories of knowledge, you could, you could say, in our head, by which we're able to extract uh, and make sense of the, the kind of uh, chaotic data of the world around us. Uh, but the problem is that both have severed access with the world. And so the reason why they're arbitrary is because there's no uh, appeal beyond, uh, beyond the self, beyond kind of internal uh, kind of principles of reason or uh, beyond uh, pleasure. Uh, there's no appeal as to why we ought to do one thing versus another. And um, what this means, actually, is that there is uh, no way to adjudicate uh, between, between those things. And it becomes uh, very relative. And so the, diagno uh, the diagnosis by relativists and nihilists that, that things are 
subjective and things are relative and ultimately that things have no meaning makes sense because, you know, how could you, you know, who can say? We, we can't know what the world is. We can't access any meaningful order. Um, if such an order exists in the world, we couldn't know it. So yeah, that's such a miserable like way to live. There is. Um, and to think about life and the good. I remember being in a, in a church, believe it or not, and I was talking with someone. And it was, you know, um, I think it was actually 2016. And so things were very um, turbulent after, uh, you know, Ferguson and Michael Brown and, you know, kind of like where we're at today. And so the whole country is having the conversation mm-hmm. about racial justice and police brutality. Hard thing to talk about. Um, anyway, I remember talking with mm-hmm. um, a few people at church, uh, a church that I was visiting, and there was a very clarifying moment when I um, started talking about um, how important it was for us to be talking about this so that we can together share our experiences and and come to a better understanding of the truth, especially by going outside our comfort zone, hearing something we maybe mm-hmm. don't want to hear, uh, exposing ourselves to objective facts instead of living in our own feelings, et cetera, et cetera. And as soon as I talked about, you know, helping yeah. each other get to the truth, there's a woman who just immediately laughed and, and scoffed at me and said, truth, right. <laughs> everybody's got their own truth. What is truth? Um, and, you know, it's pretty revealing, but I, I think that's just the norm about our culture. And we've, we have adopted in many corners of America today, we've adopted the cynicism mm. that uh, we'll never arrive at a real understanding of the truth. Philosophers have been trying for thousands of years. We can't agree on anything. Everybody's got their own opinion and their own perspective. And so let's just leave it at that. Um, I, I see the allure of that, um, especially, you know, um, yeah, sometimes it's easier to adopt uh, a negative mindset, you know, than to live with hope. Yeah. Uh, and the idea that we can do better and we can come to an understanding of the truth. It's hard. It takes work. It does require listening. But I also just think that falling back on this nihilism is unlivable. It's, yeah. it's miserable. It's toxic. Yeah. And it doesn't actually equip us to live with other people peacefully because our own selfish pursuits will inevitably run smack dab into one another and we'll have to fight it out if we don't have a way of actually thinking through what is the right way to live. Right. We'll have to actually decide or choose, you know, which way or which end to pursue, which purpose to Mm. pursue. And I think, you know, if I can just add a quick summary note, you know, Again, yeah. I think the the, diagno- the, the diagnosis of uh, nihilism and relativism of the modern ethical enterprise is completely right. I mean, uh, if there is no access to the world, uh, meaning is made up. It's imaginary. Um, how could mm-hmm. it be anything else? Um, and certainly, you know, it's even more so with the way that we tend to view individuals as kind of atomistic and and completely isolated individuals. I can't I can't know what you know because I don't have your experience, right? The moment you start right. saying things like that is the moment any any hope to come to common conclusions or to engage in rational uh, argument and discourse uh, basically breaks down. Yeah. I agree. And we're seeing that happen. People are being driven further and further apart right yeah. now. Um, 
even though more and more people are talking about the power of dialogue and coming together and talking through these things, right. um, in my mind, it reveals the importance of, of having an understanding of truth and even having an idea that truth is attainable and we can understand it. Not perfectly. Right. No one right. has a monopoly on the truth and we're all fallen beings. But we, right. we need to seek to learn because we think that it is possible to learn right. because truth does exist in the world right. and we ought to pursue it as much as we can. Right. But if you don't yeah. have that as a starting point, uh, I see. I think there's a, a really dark way that this manifests right. itself when people think that the power of dialogue and talking is so right. that I can speak my truth into a formless, shapeless void right. and, and thus impose my, my truth onto right. the world and make it right. true for other people as well. Yeah. And that's, that's playing, that's back to playing God, right? Like right. you talked about. And, right. and so it's, it's crazy to me that we find ourselves at this crossroad where the way we react to the world and the way we engage with it, like we, there's uh, two primary ways to go about this. And, you know, option A is acknowledge you are not God, but God is God. <laughs> he made the right. world. There's purpose, there's light, there's truth, there's love in it. Live accordingly. And then right. option B is, Everything is random. Everything is meaningless. There is no good and evil. There is just power. So right. go and impose your truth on the world right. and recreate the world in your image. Right. And I, I think. Do you think that's putting it too strongly? No. I. Yeah. I don't think it is. Um, okay. I think. I think that's uh, basically uh, someone like Alistair McIntyre's uh, argument in in his book After Virtues, basically. Uh, nihilism is only right, the conclusions of nihilism and relativism are only right if the initial conclusions of people like Hume and Kant were right. If the rejection mm. of uh, meaningful access to the world and the natural and transcendent order in the world, if, if access to that is, is impossible, um, then, then of course nihilism is right, as I've already kind of pointed out. But... In other words, if I can restate that, in other words, if we can't even know reality, then it's impossible impossible to pursue truth in the world or to engage with truth. Right, in the or world. to have any sense of meaning or value. Yeah, because basically nihilism was just, you know, it was just a matter of time before you got to nihilism, basically, as soon as right. you say that. Of course. So uh, what, what I think this shows us and what this forces us to do is if, if we want to uh, evaluate if there's another way, we have to go further back. And I think, um, I think, yeah, there's a lot more to say about that. Uh, and we uh, should definitely do it next time. We'll have to do a part two of this because we, we left this on a pretty down note. <laughs> yeah. But uh, maybe to um, recap everything we've talked about today, Jared, for the purposes of personal leadership um, for for especially members of the Windrus family are talking about, well, okay, what do I do with all this? Yeah. How can they, uh, well, obviously we'll talk about a better ethical uh, right. framework in a part two to this. So guys, stay tuned for that. But for now, I think it's also so important to be able to identify nihilism in your own thoughts, right. uh, relativism in your own actions and moral judgments and, and those of the world around us, right? right? So what are some of the biggest red flags that you would point to as, um, you know, the danger signs of nihilism or or the presence of relativism creeping into how we live and treat yeah. other people. Yeah, I think um, I think the most glaring one to me is the sort of uh, 
pretend the, the feigned neutrality you could call it the this mm. you know response both intellectually but also functionally um you know uh, oh well you know you have your truth i have my truth like um it's it's one thing to agree to disagree it's another thing to say that you know to basically seed that relativism is a thing or nihilism is a thing and so i think one of the most valuable tools we can have in our our toolbox is uh, this idea that there is no neutrality to the the ethical question what is the good life for the human person there is also no neutrality when it comes to uh, the question of what is the best or most just society um that anyone who who pretends to say like oh well you know i just want a world in which we can all get along well okay but that's still a positive conception of the good life and the best society um and what we have to realize is that it's an answer to the question to those questions um they aren't standing outside or above or over and against uh ethics uh or or politics or or political philosophy uh they are one of the contenders too and they can be met on that ground they don't stand outside or above they're one they're one of uh they they're right. answering the question and they can be engaged reasonably and critically mm. and 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 we owe it to them to ask hard questions to to push them uh and i'm not saying be um uh, argumentative for the sake of being argumentative but i mean uh i think we don't have to feel like we can't ask hard questions to people who basically want to opt out of those hard conversations by saying well you have your truth i have my truth but you know like what does it actually mean that life has value if if we believe it what does it actually mean that there's a uh, uh, transcendent order in the world uh that we can actually access um if if you know uh in fact you know things like utilitarianism and deontology and nihilism are wrong then you know uh we we need to be able to evaluate that and obviously i'm getting ahead of myself uh we'll see more of this next time but right um, i think but those... in other words know what you believe and know why you believe it right. and be willing to be questioned be willing to challenge yourself and your own beliefs and be willing to challenge others in a healthy way exactly. um out of really a sense of love because we're all pursuing truth together because we'll all be better off if right. we pursue truth and and live in accordance with truth um and if we don't do that we're actually not doing a very good job of yeah. of being good stewards of our own lives or being good neighbors to the people around us so exactly i agree with that and i think um it it reminds me of the thing i i know i harp on this a lot but the fundamental question of being willing to always ask is that true yeah. because we get told so much stuff everywhere you go people are telling you what to think right or giving you all this crazy sensationalist stuff especially in the news today yeah and so we always have to go a little deeper right and ask well okay i hear what you're saying but is that true um because right. we can't trust other people to think for us we can't put blind faith in news outlets we can't put blind tr- right. faith in politicians um it would be uh an irresponsible irresponsible way to use our own faculties if right. we don't use them but we rely on other people anyway so part of leadership an essential part of leadership is knowing how to navigate hard questions and and the the difficult realities of this world for yourself so that you can lead the way and actually be a light right. to others but that starts with being willing to ask the hard right. question is this true right. and then do the hard work to to figure that out and answer those questions I couldn't agree more awesome 
And I know that even that is a little vague, but man, I find myself every single day, you hear crazy stuff and I'm like, well, we got to go a little deeper. Yeah. Is this true? Even if it's stuff that I want to believe, you know, right. like, oh, I, you know, I like that baseball team and, and I hear rumors that they're going to make a trade to get a great new pitcher. Right. Well, I need to go deeper. Is this actually right. true? And then you realize that ESPN is just throwing up, right. you know, leading headlines because they want you to click on it if you like yeah. that team. And there's no real likelihood that there's going to be a trade. I right. see that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and so, especially in the world of information yeah. and, and journalism. I think if I can just add one final thing, I, you know, I sure. think this is the importance of, of something like philosophy, um, not just kind of as a, a navel-gazing, you know, speculative endeavor, but really in, almost in, you could maybe say, an apologetic function of it, right? It's, it's to help me understand why I believe what I believe and uh, and why others should too, um, or you know, and or to put it negatively, why I don't believe what others believe and why others shouldn't, um, and and it it's hmm. you know you know is it true is just one of the questions you can ask. You can you can also ask you know does this match human experience? Does this match the way most of us live? Does this match? Uh, is it is it reasonable to believe this? Is it reasonable to doubt this? Um, I mean, you. The the point is not to question for the sake of questioning, right? But but like you're saying, questioning things for the sake of greater understanding. Um, it's not just about being contrary, uh, uh, contrarian for the sake of right. of being contrarian. So, yeah, getting exactly. to the truth because truth matters, reality matters. Um, <laughs> pursuing all of these questions, even when they're difficult together with a humble heart, open mind, uh, but with the hope that truth is attainable. Exactly. Um, that's exactly. so important, you know, and, and that's, that's a beautiful common ground. You can build a culture and a community around that and move forward together in a way that's positive and, and helpful for yeah. everybody. Yeah, exactly. Right, Jared? And that's what we're trying to do at Windrose. So thank you guys for listening to us. Um, as we alluded to, we know this podcast has gone on long enough. We've done enough mental lifting yep. <laughs> for one session. But let's come back. We'll hit it again in part two, and we will answer the second half of the the subject line, which is how do we move on from this? What's a better alternative? What Do we have an option for a, a good, objective, ethical framework for our time? Uh, of course, if we're going to be leaders in our time, if we're going to be leaders in our own lives and our own communities, we need to be able to have an ethical framework that we believe to actually be reflective of truth and not merely the the result of arbitrary exactly. human whims or the world as we would right. want it to be. Um, so it's a matter of not playing God, but rather coming to the truth in a faithful exactly. way. Um, so we'll get back to that in part two with Jared, of course. Uh, Jared, any parting uh, words? Just stay tuned for the next podcast. It, it should, be, should be a good podcast. Absolutely. Well, God bless you all. Thank you for sharing your time with us. Remember, your life is value, so keep fighting the good fight. Take care, everyone. <laughs>